Good morning. Is this on? There we go. Uh, we left Thursday afternoon and drove to Gaylord, Michigan. I want to let you all know, uh, snow does exist. Um, it is a real thing. Um, thankfully, that's the most winter we've seen was for about 14 hours in northern Michigan, and then we got to come back to beautiful weather. Um, if this is what climate change is, I'm all for it. I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm game. This is cool. Um, but I do appreciate you praying for us. It was, uh, it was a good service. Um, James was one of Brother Adam's best friends. They traveled on tour for three summers, which means they spent about nine months of their lives traveling around the country together. And James was one of those people, kind of like my mom, where nobody had anything bad to say about him. Uh, he just turned 30 years old, passed away about a week or so ago. Um, and just, they, they did things a little bit different. They had it as an open mic night, and anybody could share a story about James. And it was one of the weirdly most fun funerals I've ever been to. Um, James was one of those people, I was telling a few, few folks this morning, he probably should have been arrested about a dozen times in his life for really stupid things. Um, he was at Brother McCullough's camp in New Jersey, Camp Orr, I think you've been there before, and it's right on the edge of a lake, you know what I'm talking about? And that lake is actually state park property. The camp has permission to use the lake for kids to go swimming and whatnot, and James and these other guys from the tour group were out in a canoe, a couple of canoes, and decide, James saw some Canadian geese and decided to go hunting for a protected species on state park property. He killed seven of them. And then they get all the way back to the shore and Brother McCullough's standing there because he'd watched the whole thing because the ranger station is directly across from the camp. And he kind of chewed him out and then, well, we're not going to waste this. And he made James defeather and gut them and cook them all for dinner for the kids for camp that night. They had fresh goose at camp, which is really weird thing to eat at church camp. But he was one of those kind of people. We were in, I was with him on a tour group trip in Georgia, and we were deep in the swamps at this camp, and I, I don't like that camp, because I walked away with about 300 mosquito bites. It was just, it was gross. There were alligators, like legitimately there's alligator warning signs at camp. Okay, we have to worry when we go to New Hampshire about the occasional black bear, which if you scream loud enough, they run away from you. Alligators don't care. But we're out. We leave real early one morning because we needed to get an oil change on the, uh, the college van. And we, James was the only one awake. Adam was snoozing his brains out. And we left real early. And an armadillo comes running across the road. And I slam it into park. I've never seen an armadillo in real life. I, I mean, saw him on TV. And we proceeded to chase this stupid thing around and kick it like a soccer ball. It, you know, curls up in a ball, and James punts it across the field. I mean, just, bam. he would have been hired by the NFL after that kick. It was amazing. This thing bounces across and then unrolls and runs away, and he's just like, hmm, and gets back in the van. That's just the kind of human being he was. But the one amazing part about him is there was one phrase everybody repeated, is anytime you got in trouble, James, and they, James was always the first person people would call. His response was, I'll be right there. And he helped everybody, no matter what. The kid was a master carpenter. He was a master plumber, master electrician. And I mean, he actually had the certifications on all of those. He was 30 when he passed away. He was a mechanic that could work on gas and diesel engines, just ridiculously talented human being. And he could sing, played piano, guitar, just amazing. And just loved everybody and did a good job at it. And watching 300 plus people brag on somebody like that kind of was convicting because am I going to live a life like that where nobody has anything negative to say about me? 
I've already screwed that part up. I know that. Half of you don't even like me, okay? But I will also tell you this. That was the first time in my life I genuinely felt old. I make fun of some of you a lot. <sighs> Half those kids used to be my students. They were 18, 19 years old. Now they all have kids. I felt old. Now I know what you feel like. <sighs> I'm, I'm mildly jealous. But anyways, we're going to move on. Judges chapter 4. Judge, I do appreciate you praying for us. We were gone for 55 hours, and we drove 28 of those. And um, yeah, that's never a good time, ever. So if Brother Adam and I fall asleep on the platform this morning, it's because we drove 14 hours straight yesterday, came home and passed out. So uh, Judges chapter 4. We're going to backtrack a little bit to verse 6. We're not going to spend a lot of time... In recap, but we're just going to reread a few parts before we move forward. Judges chapter 4, look at verse 6. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And this is important, because remember, again, Barak is, according to what we know, it's the first time he's really met Deborah. He's probably heard of her, he knew where to find her, but her, one of her first things that she says to him is, hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? God's already told you this, I'm just repeating this. But it's the last part of verse 7 that is going to become very important to today's lesson is I will deliver him into thine hand. God is saying, I'm winning this battle today. You just get to be part of it. Keep that, in, keep that in mind because, again, that becomes very important here in just a few verses. Look at verse 8. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee. And let's pause. I mentioned this last week. This is not Barak wimping out. You realize this is, again, in an era where the Israelites themselves did not have direct access to talk to God. Who did they have to go through, typically? The priest. In this case... We're not given any indication that there's a good priest, but there is a good prophetess. She is one communicating with God. God is communicating through her. So Barak's not saying, I'm a wimp and I'm not going. He's saying, I want you to go because you talk to God and I need God to be with me. We read through Hebrews. Turn with me. We read this last week. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. I, I know we're backtracking a little bit, but sometimes a recap is helpful. We're only in here once a week. So Hebrews chapter 11 and look at verse 32. In the, the chapter known as the Faith Hall of Fame, 11, Hebrews eleven thirty-two. 32. And what, more, uh, what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. He's listed in your Faith Hall of Fame. And I believe part of the reason was he knew he needed God and God's messenger on his side to do what God needed him to do. In the end of verse 7, it says, I, God, I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak is owning up to that. If God's going to do the delivering here, I need God on my side. And that's where he's asking Deborah to go with him. Her response in verse 9, and she said, I will surely go with thee. And then we get an ounce, a very small portion of the prophecy that Deborah is given her title for being a prophetess, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, 
for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Think about that for a split second. Barak is called by this prophetess. She's judging Israel. She's the one that is also, if you will, at the time, their political leader. You're going to do all the work, but you're not going to get all the credit. As a man, that's a rough thing to, to take. You back this off by about 3,000 years of human history. People have issues with the patriarchy today. They would have died back then because you got burned at the stake for that kind of stuff, okay? But here's the deal. This guy is being called by God. Is that not what it says in verse six? Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? You're being called of God to go do this thing, but you're not gonna get any of the major credit for it. And he still has to agree to go. But Deborah's prophecy here is a little bit unique because you realize, I don't think Deborah knew who this woman was going to be. All it says is, the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. God gave her enough prophecy to know that Barak's not going to be the one to kill Sisera. But I don't know who it is yet. Are we okay with that? Meaning Deborah had to trust God too. She is making a thus saith the Lord statement right here, but she's got to trust God that he's going to follow through. He does that to us all the time. But we decide, nah, I got this. How often do we lose when we got this? When are we going to figure out that we should just let God got this and he wins every time? But unfortunately, we're not exactly intelligent. So we don't own up to that. But Deborah and Barak, we, we talked last week a lot about Barak's faith in this moment. But we didn't mention at all that Deborah had to have a level of faith here because she just made a prophecy. What happens to a prophet if they're proven false according to the Old Testament? They're stoned to death. She's taking a step of faith here by making this a public statement. Because if it's wrong, she dies by the end of this day. So there's a step of faith on her part here. Go with me, uh, tail end of verse 9. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. This is kind of an, we're given the idea that this was an immediate step. Barak shows up. She's like, God already commanded you to do this. We're going to go. I'm not going unless you go with me. All right, I'm going to go, but I want you to know the end of the day, the one who kills the bad guy is not going to be you. It's going to be a lady. All right, let's go. And they just leave and they go. And verse 10, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet and Deborah went with him. Now that particular portion here in verse 10, I don't have any indication how long this took. This wasn't uh, the era of mass texts. He couldn't shoot something out on Twitter. Hey, I need some soldiers. Where are we at? That, that didn't work that way. This was all word of mouth, sending out messengers. And I'm, I'm just venturing a guess. This had to have been a few days to a week to gather all of these people together. Are we okay? Because they're all traveling by foot. So we've got a, a at least short span of time that progresses here in verse number 10. Go with me right to verse 11. And this is right where we left off last week. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent under the plain of Zaanim, uh, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, 
and all the people that were with him from Harasheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. And I mentioned this last week. The Kenites were distant relatives or distant relation to the Israelites through Abraham. When Sarah died, Abraham remarried. He remarried Keturah. And in uh, Genesis chapter 25, the first four verses, it talks about Keturah and all of her sons, one of them being Midian. One of Midian's sons were the people that became the Kenites. Okay, so they are kind of like distant cousins of the Israelites. They, weirdly enough, have at least a minimal claim to that land. Do they not? As children of Abraham, they technically have some claim, which gives us an indication why they're there in the first place. Read through Joshua and Judges. The Kenites are never kicked out. Why? Because they were family. They weren't allowed to kick them out because they could make claim to that. Are we okay? I can't back that up with a bunch of Bible. That's Bishology, but there's no indication that the Israelites ever tried to kick them out. By the way, there's no indication that they ever tried to do anything wrong to the Israelites except for this one moment. Just throwing that out there as well. But here's an interesting note. Look at verse 11. We're introduced to this new person here, Heber the Kenite. But look at the beginning of verse 12. And they showed Sisera. You do understand plurals, correct? Heber is a, is, is a one. That's a singular, correct? How is it suddenly a they? Have you ever thought about that? The Bible explains it, I think, a little bit. And they showed Sisera. So we've got Heber, this guy, who has, according to verse 11, he has severed himself. He has separated himself from his people. Why? Because he has pitched his tent, according to the Bible, by Kadesh, he has aligned himself with the enemy. I mentioned this last week, very much like what Lot did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He started off by pitching his tent in that general direction. And what happened with Lot? He ended up living in the city and becoming part of their leadership, according to the Bible. Heber, I feel like, was on that path. Why? These guys have been in charge for 20 years. Maybe he's tired of servitude. Maybe he's tired of slavery. And by making this move, he thinks he's going to advance his family and advance himself. Are we okay? Well, how else do you get yourself in the good graces of the guy in charge than by playing traitor? Has that, by the way, effectively ever really worked out for anybody in history? Benedict, Ar Benedict Arnold, any of those guys? We remember them as terrible human beings. Well, that's unfortunately where Heber's about to go. Jump with me to verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? Please mark that little section of verse number 14. She's repeating in another phrase exactly what she said in the previous verses in verse number 6. I will deliver him into thine hand. God's got this, Barak. God's got this. By the way, wouldn't it be great if somebody, every time you had a challenging situation... You had a decision to make and you didn't know what it was that somebody would just remind you, God's got this. God's got this. By the way, we have a reminder of that. All we have to do is read it. You have a challenging situation, a rough decision. It's a lesser of two evils type of thing and you don't know what to do. God gave you some instructions. He gave you direct access to his throne room. Just ask him. 
because he's got it all figured out. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? One of the parts, one of the attributes of God that you and I cannot physically, we we just mentally, we cannot fathom this, is God always was in the past, always is, and always will be in the future. Meaning he literally knows all, all at once, past, present, and future. Guys, we barely remember what happened yesterday. We have zero clue what's happening for lunch, some of us today. You know, like some of us, if you look down, you probably don't even have matching socks on for crying out loud. And and trying to wrap our brains around the fact that God just like has all of it all all in some form of timeline. He knows all of it because it says he's gone out before thee. Why? Because God's already been there in the future and he knows what's going to happen. And if we're smart enough to let him lead, he's going to win. And I'm not just talking the big stuff, the Battle of Armageddon. He won that. It's done. Hasn't happened yet, but he already won. I'm talking the little problem that we're dealing with that in front of us looks like the most impassable mountain to God. That's a pimple on the face of time. He's already won. He's already been there. He's gone out before thee. That's huge. We need that reminder a lot of times. We really do because we get overwhelmed by what's happening around us because we look up and there's this mountain of a problem and we can't see around it, we can't see over it. But God's already been there. He's already done that. He's already won if we'll let him. And Deborah's reminding Barak of that. Could you imagine, by the way, going into battle? We're talking like life or death level situation here and knowing God's already been there. That's kind of a, that's a, that's a cool moment. I, when I was a kid, the, the, one of the, I had the, we had a Super Nintendo and then got into a Nintendo 64. And for the Super Nintendo, they invented this thing called the Game Genie. You would plug your game cartridge in and then plug that into the... You remember when you had to like still blow on game cartridges? Some of us are that old, okay? Because the dust actually would ruin your game. You plug this into the Game Genie and plug that in. Game Genie came with this book. As soon as you put that in, you'd flip through the book, find your game... And it was full of cheat codes. You'd spend like 50, 60 bucks on this thing just to get all these cheat codes. And you know, up, down, A, B, select, right, left. But but, uh, if you hit them in just the right timing, all of a sudden you went from the first level to the last level and you're playing the last boss and you had to do nothing in between. You realize God has all the cheat codes because he wrote them all? And we're stupid enough to think, oh, I can play through. I got this. And we're like, wait a second, I don't even have a controller. And he's like, duh. I know that I'm talking to old people and a few of you are like, what's a video game? All right, but. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. I'm not going to make it to Sunday morning service because I'll be dead in the parking lot. But it's a good analogy. So at the end of verse 14, is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Throughout history, I'm a big history buff. Throughout history, there's been, some, there's been handfuls of warriors that have risen up and have stood the test of time as far as their level of ferocity. One of those was the, a group of the Norsemen. They were known as the Berserkers. In fact, their favorite weapon wasn't, wasn't a sword. It wasn't a bow and arrow. It was a battle hammer. 
First off, can you imagine bludgeoning someone to death? That's horrible. And we're talking like Thor-level battle hammer. These things weighed 20 to 30 pounds. And they would go to battle all day long swinging this giant sledgehammer, just demolishing people. And the one of the reasons they won is this hammer could smash through shields. I mean, we're talking, there's epic stories of them, a guy holding his shield up. They smashed through the shield, shattered his arm, and collapsed his chest with a single blow. And the guy's laying there dead, literally caved in. One of the reasons the berserkers are so well-known and so remembered through history is they were high as kites going into battle. I mean, that's not a joke. Look it up. These guys were taking all kinds of psychedelic mushrooms and other stuff, and they were basically doping themselves going into battle because, number one, they felt no pain, and the, the high they got gave them no fear. Barak and his men are going in knowing God went before them. Could you imagine the level of ferocity, the level of courage, the confidence that you have going into battle because you've just been told by the one person in your entire country that talks to God that you're going to win. These guys probably went into battle on a raging high, not due to drugs, but due to the fact that they knew God already had it. That's kind of amazing. By the way, they're remembered in history. Why? Because they won. They took out an army that was bigger, stronger, and more, way more advanced than them. And not because they were special, but because God already won. Look at verse 15. And here's the proof. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. Verse 15 has got a lot packed into it here. We're given indication right off the bat, God won this. We were told that in verse 6. We were repeated that in verse 14, but God wins this battle. We are actually given indication in Judges chapter 5 how God won this battle. So just you should have to jump like a, a page or so ahead. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. Judges chapter 4 and verse Judges chapter 5, verse 4. Sorry, I got that backwards. It says, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. And then jump down to verse 21. The river of Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river of Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. The one downside to having chariots of iron is they don't do so well in the mud. God sent some kind of crazy storm and bogged these guys down to where the one tactical advantage they had, chariots of iron, God removed the whole thing. Go back with me to verse 15 in chapter 4. The Lord discomfited Sisera. God had already gone down before them. How did he do so? He changed the weather. He changed the weather. It rained. Could you imagine your entire army hinges on the fact that you can only fight when it's not raining? That's kind of dumb. That'd be like having an army of the Wicked Witch of the West. They can do everything unless it's raining and they start melting. And you're like, huh, cool. This was easy. 
They literally, because look at the way this is, once now that we know Judges chapter 5 and part of the song of Deborah and Barak, which we're going to get into a little bit possibly next week, but look at this. It kind of gives us the breakdown. The Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. Why did he have to run away? His chariot couldn't go anywhere. It was stuck in the mud. Does anybody know a time in history where God did something similar? Moses opened up the Red Sea. Pharaoh's got all of his army and all of his chariots. God wiped them all out pretty quickly. Now, that one was a lot faster, I would imagine, because you, the, the, the whole sea comes rushing on you. Mud's not the worry. It's the drowning and, and the sharks and the drowning. Um, but in this case, God sent just enough. And, and if you go with me, go back to chapter uh, 5. It gives us an indication of how much this rain was. The heavens dropped, we're in verse 4, the clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before the Lord. That's a lot of rain. That's, by the way, what do you call a mountain melting in rapid succession? A mudslide. What better way to win than by using something God's already completely in control of, the weather? And he just wiped these guys out. Could you imagine Barak and his whole army are like, cool, it's raining. And all of a sudden, this entire army's charging, and they just stop in their tracks. And they're like, whoa, yay, go. And just wiped them out. Wiped them out. Why? Because they couldn't go anywhere. They were just stuck where they were at. And Sisera gives us an indication of, by the way, I don't think Sisera was the only one that ran away. He's the only one listed in here as having run away, but undoubtedly he's not the only. But here's the deal. When you're in battle like this and your leader books it the opposite direction, where does your confidence go? In the mud in this case. I imagine as soon as Sisera, and most of the time in the ancient world, whoever the general, the captain of the host was, they were dressed in specific regalia. They had brighter colors, they'll have feathers, whatever it might have been to signify who they were. We've done that for, for generations and millennia. Whoever's in charge wore different colors, different uniform. We, we okay? They see him get off his chariot and start running away. You just got to imagine everybody else is every man for himself, and they just started running away. And Barak and his 10,000 men, they're already hopped up on the fact that God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you win. They watched this happen, and they just pounced on this. And they just took these guys out. Look at verse 16 with me. And Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles. We're given an indication that some of these chariots were able to run away. Some of these men were able to run away. And all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. They wiped them all out. Why? Because God had already said, I've been here, and I'm going to win. And Barak did something on a better level than you and I usually do. He asked God to go with him, and then he had faith that God was going to win. And he did. End of story. We could just stop right here and just think about that. Why don't I do that more often? 
We have battles, every one of us do. We raise our hands at every church service. What is something we need to pray about? And we all have whatever it may be. And everybody's is going to be different because we're in all different walks of life, all different stages of life. But we have a God who has been there, who will win if we will give up our choice and our will and say, God, I need you to go with me and I'm not going through this without you. And that right there is the key. Barak asked Deborah, I'm not going unless you go with me. Why? Because I need God on my side. And most of us don't ask God to go with us. I, remember the bumper sticker that was big about 15 years ago? God is my co-pilot. That's a load of garbage. He's not the co-pilot. You don't even have access to the steering wheel. Okay? Like, you think you do. You're like, you're jamming on that invisible brake pedal in the passenger seat right now like you think you're... Remember when mom would do that? Oh, it was awful. Absolutely awful. I actually, when I first got my, my learner's permit, I liked driving with mom. Because mom, <clears throat> mom did not drive as carefully as dad did. Um, the first time I ever hit 100 miles an hour, mom was in the passenger seat. Um, we were coming to a Valentine's banquet and she needed nylons. So we stopped at Burlington and she just told me, Tim, we're going to be late. I don't care how fast you go, just, just get me there. Okay. We made it down 15 in record time. And she finally looks up, because she's in the back seat trying to get all ready, and she looks up, whoa, are, how fast are we going? I said, you told me you didn't want to know. Okay. I loved riding with mom, but when mom would get scared or freaked out, she'd just randomly scream for no reason while driving. That, that's a terrifying moment. You realize we do that to God all the time? He's actually driving this ship, and we're like, ah! And he's like, what are you doing? A few of you just woke up for the first time all morning, and I am so, so sorry. Hey, we, we have Clorox wipes we can clean up after you. I, <laughs> if you're on live stream and you actually weren't paying attention, you're welcome, okay? But we do that to God all the time. He's just cruising along because he's, he's been there. He already knows exactly what's going to happen. And he's just like, and we freak out because, oh, oh, did you see that? And he's like, yeah, I saw it. We're going to, you'll be fine. Just let me handle it. No, 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 I got this. God's been there. Look at verse 14. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? We can win these battles. We just got to give up control. And that may be one of the biggest struggles as a human being we will ever deal with. Think about all the times we've fallen back into sin. Why? I didn't want to give up control. Because I can control this. No, you can't. Anybody who ever says that usually is dealing with some form of addiction. I can control that. No, you can't. Do you know who can? the God who created and controls everything. This may be, out of this entire account, this may be the biggest lesson you and I need to pull away from this. I know I've spent three weeks on 16 verses and I'm not apologizing for that because there's so much buried in here. But out of the entirety of the book of Judges, you realize, had the Israelites given God control, this book would have ended right here it would have ended. This book would have ended right here. And we may have a different world today. But they kept choosing, I want to do what I want to do. 
every man did right that which was right in his own eyes. That's about control. We have to give God control. We choose every day. Am I going to be in charge or is God going to be in charge? The problem is we don't have a clue what any given day will bring. Anybody had any surprises in the last week, good or bad? God already knew where those were going. He had all of it. He knows. He knows all of it. And we are caught by surprise. He's never caught by surprise. Why? Because he's gone out before thee. He knows if we will give up control. And again, I've already said this. That may be the most difficult thing as a human being to do. Because we're not good at that. We're not at all. I'm not even good at letting Carla drive. She hits her brakes just, just a little too fast for me. It's like, it's a Michigan thing. I hate it. I just drove in Michigan. They, everybody there does that. It's like, slam on the brakes and then, oh, now we're going to turn. And the turn signal comes on halfway through the turn. We do that junk to God all the time. And he's like, guys, you're stupid. Just, would you just stay on course? Would you just take your time? And I, I know what I'm doing. Just, just let me, you don't even have to steer. You got to realize sometimes I think God might get a little frustrated with us once in a while. Because he's got the whole thing mapped out. He knows exactly where every twist and turn, where every hill, where every valley's at. And we act like it's the most mind-blowing, world-shattering moment. And he's like, I got it if you'll let me run things. So I want you to think about that this week. Read through the story again. And if you haven't already, read through the book of Judges. Had the children of Israel caught on right here to what? Barak and Deborah did by letting God control. And you realize at this point, it's Deborah, Barak, and 10,000 of the children of Naphtali and Kadesh. Uh, I totally lost it there. Zebulun, thank you. Meaning there's 10,002 people involved. It wasn't just Deborah and Barak that knew God was in control. But why didn't those guys from Naphtali and Zebulun go back and say, hey, God's in control. We can just stop. Let's just follow what God's got and teach their kids that and then teach their grandkids that. The book of Judges may have ceased to exist at that point, but instead they chose, I need to run things. And look at the damage it caused for more generations. So are we going to let God control our lives? Or are we going to take control? Because our kids, our grandkids... They're all watching that. And they know. We think they don't pay attention, but they're smarter than we give them credit for. And they keep track better than we think they do. Are we going to let them know, I'm letting God control. We're going to do what God wants us to do. Because that, that may teach them more than anything else you and I get to teach them. Because if they'll let God control their lives... There is no ceiling. There is no limit because God's got all of it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us. Lord, thank you for loving us.